All right, we're going to continue. We're in day three here of, of answering this question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And we started, started back on Tuesday, we said that the word gospel itself means good news, right? Good news. On Monday, or Monday, on Tuesday, we talked about what big idea, what one word would you use to describe what we talked about on Tuesday? I heard somebody say it. God, right? We talked about God. God is our creator, and God is holy and righteous. God is our creator, therefore we belong to him. He owns us, he's in charge, he sets the rules, he's the one we answer to. And he is holy and righteous, meaning he's without sin, he's perfect. He is a God who judges wickedness. And so therefore, we are accountable to him. We are accountable to him. Yesterday, the big idea was man or sin, right? So God created everything and God is holy and just and perfect. And everything belongs to him and everything gives an account to him. But man, we rebelled. Back in Adam, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the Garden of Eden. They rebelled against God and that sin has, has impacted us. It is, it's in our nature. We are, by nature, sinners. We, are not, we not only do sin, but we are sinners. It's in our nature. And therefore, we are enemies of God. We are rebels against his kingly authority. And we are at war with him as sinners. And sin will be judged. Sin is serious. Sin so if infects us and, and has made its way through us that it's just who we are as, uh, as natural human beings. We are sinners. And there's nothing that we can do that can uh, earn enough points or, or do enough good things to wipe away our sins. So it left us in a pretty rough spot. God is creator, therefore we give an account to him. He is holy and just. He cannot stand sin. We are sinners. We must give an account for our sin. And because of our sin, we deserve to go to hell. And that's where we are. That's where we are right now. How many of you guys like bad news? Not many of you like bad news, right? Yeah. So you guys, I don't think probably any of you besides counselors were alive September 11th, 2001, right? I was in eighth grade. I would just finish PE class in the morning at Warrensburg Junior Senior High in beautiful Williamsburg, Iowa. I was coming out of the locker room, and uh, there was uh, the laundry lady, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Gillespie. She's right there, and uh, she had this little like nine-inch black and white TV that had like the built-in VCR. You guys know what I'm talking about? Usually, it's like in your conversion van. You know, maybe counselors will get that. Um, but in, and she was the the laundry lady, so we would take our our towels and stuff, and throw them in the in the, the laundry baskets. And she, usually, she's watching like Prices Rights or you know those awesome daytime game shows you watch when you're sick. Um, but she was in there with another lady, and we're like Mrs. G, because that's what we called her. Mrs. G, what's going on? And she said, "Watch, look." And it was the World Trade Center on this nine-inch black and white TV in the laundry room at Warrensburg Junior Senior High. I saw the World Trade Center on fire. It's like, what? What's going on? Next, we went and we were dismissed. The bell rang, so we went to our next class. I went to social studies. Mr. Schapansky, that's a great name. Mr. Schapansky, and Mr. Schapansky said, okay, guys, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to watch the news right now. And so he turned on the TV, 
Five minutes later, as we were sitting there in eighth grade social studies, the second plane hit the second tower. The next hour, we went to our next class. It was a math class with Mr. Becker. Mr. Becker said, we're not going to do math today. We're just going to watch this. And there, in math class, we saw both towers fall. You guys have lived through a lot in this generation where you guys are at. Now you add corona and COVID and all that stuff to it. It's just crazy. But that was really, I think, a huge turning point in the world and how we operate. And I remember sitting there and thinking, this, this is crazy. This is bad news. This is rough. That afternoon, I had a football game in Tipton, Iowa, and we were on our way. And uh, we were there at the football game. And as we were playing football in Tipton, Iowa, we looked up, and there was one plane escorted by two fighter jets flying over. It was Air Force One. It was the president. He was heading to, heading to the Air Force Base in Omaha. It was just so surreal. And as you guys grow, there'll be times and things will happen and history happens when you just remember exactly where you were. And that was the account of my day. It was a Tuesday, September 11th. It was bad news. It was bad news. Thousands of people dying. Nobody likes bad news. A phone call, an email, a letter. Somebody comes and say, hey, I need to talk to you. Something bad's happened. Bad news is, is bad. As we think of our relationship with God, it starts off as bad news. We are sinners. We are in rebellion against God. But you know what the amazing thing is? God doesn't leave us there. God says, yes, there's bad news. Your sin, you deserve to go to hell. But there's good news. There's good news. And that good news is Jesus Christ. And that's what is amazing about our God. As man has rebelled against him, as we are sinners, we are his enemies, he doesn't say, you know what? If you want to fight against me, I'm just going to judge you, and that's it. No, he says, no, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sin, even though you do not deserve it. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. All the way back here in Genesis 3, when we read yesterday about Adam and Eve and their fall into sin and their rebellion against God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, man has messed up, man has sinned against God, but God is already promising that he is going to set things right. So Genesis 3, the first uh, 13 verses are all about uh, the rebellion about Satan tempting Adam and Eve and them falling into, excuse me, falling into sin. But as you look in Genesis 3, verse 15, as he's talking to the serpent, which is, we understand to be Satan, he says this, I will put enmity, or there'll be a, a disagreement, there'll be a battle between you and the woman. So between Satan and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's saying to Satan, you know what? You're going to be at war not only with me, but also with mankind. And you're going to be warring for their souls. 
And this is what's going to happen. You might win a victory here and there, but ultimate victory will come through someone from the woman. So you look here, between your offspring and her offspring. So the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me ask you this. If somebody steps on your heel and crushes it, just completely obliterates it, will it hurt? Yes. If you've ever hurt your heel, you can't walk right, it hurts really bad. But will you die? No. In the words of my father, Dale Gosnell, the heel is a long way from the heart. Dad, I hurt my finger. It's a long way from the heart, son. Right? It hurts. It's painful. But it's not going to kill you. Let's say somebody steps on your head and completely crushes your head. That would be a little bit different, right? The picture of what God is saying here is that then offspring of the woman. So a child from the woman will be born. Satan will bruise the heel of that offspring. He will harm him, but he won't kill him. But that offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. The idea will crush the head of the serpent. Already back in Genesis 3, God is saying to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, which is Satan, I'm going to send somebody who's going to crush Satan, who's going to set things right. One of my favorite authors is a man named Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote a children's book, but it's a great book. It's called uh, The Biggest Story. And in it, he talks about the snake crusher. What an awesome name. The snake crusher. That snake crusher is Jesus. The offspring of the woman, prophesied by God for generations, and he was born. And, and where did Satan bruise his heel? Where did Satan think that he had Jesus? On the, on the cross, right? Because he died. But did he stay dead? No. He was resurrected. He's alive. And in doing so, he crushed Satan. And will have ultimate victory when he comes back. So already in Genesis 3, we have these words of hope. Already in Genesis 3, we see this story unfold of how God is going to redeem. He's going to to buy back. He's going to set things right. How man has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Already God is planning and preparing to send his own son to redeem man and woman. As we look at Genesis 3, we see it unfolding through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through the nation of Israel, through all these things that point to Jesus. We learned last night in Leviticus how the sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement, they're pointing to a greater reality. They're something that's faint, that's a shadow of something more full to come, and that is Jesus There's a great example in Numbers, and we're going to look at that tonight. I don't want to give it all away. It involves snakes, too, um, of foreshadowing of Jesus. Then you go through the judges and, and to the kings, and you have King David, right? 
And God makes a promise with King David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Forever. And we come to understand that that is Jesus. Jesus comes, not as a conquering king, but as a baby. And he lives a perfect life. And he's crucified, and he's dead, and he's buried, and he's raised again. And he demonstrates that faith in him provides forgiveness of sins because Jesus did no wrong and yet he was crucified for us. This is the whole storyline of the Bible for God's glory of God redeeming mankind of pointing things to Jesus. It's all about him. In the book What is the Gospel the author says this the Bible is the story of God's counteroffensive against sin it is the grand narrative you guys know what a narrative is it's like a big overarching story right it's the grand narrative of how God made it right how he is making it right and how he will one day make it right finally and forever so let's look at Jesus he is fully God and fully man We're going to be jumping around here to a few different passages. Let's start in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 35. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man in the same person. Luke says this, this is speaking of Mary, his mother. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Meaning, how can I give birth if I don't have a physical relationship with a man? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It was a miraculous conception, the fact that Mary conceived a baby, and that baby was born, and that baby was perfect without sin. He was fully God and fully man. Flip a little bit to your right to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is all about Jesus, especially verses the first 18 verses about Jesus coming. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is John talking about here? What? Jesus, right? The Word became flesh. In my Bible, they capitalized the word, word, right? Because it's in reference to Jesus. The Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we can go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. To your right some more in the New Testament here. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I'll start in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That high priest is Jesus. He is without sin. He is fully God and fully man. I don't have this on the slides up here, but you guys can write these down. Thinking about Jesus, write down John chapter 1. You guys, it's already up here, but write John chapter 1, John 1. Then you can write down Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Then you can also write down Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is how I remember it, and it's helpful for me. Jesus Christ holy. Okay, that's what's in my mind. Jesus Christ holy. John, Jesus, 1. Christ, Colossians, 1. Holy, Hebrews, 1. Those three chapters really set the stage for understanding who Jesus is, and it's really helpful. But they talk about that he is fully God. He is fully man. He's without sin. He is the perfect sacrifice. In John, it talks about him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another passage you can mention is Philippians chapter 2. And that's, let's actually flip there right now. Philippians chapter 2. There's so much to know about Jesus. This is just a really quick flyover. Uh, you could, oh man, you could spend an, an, a lifetime just studying these aspects of who Jesus is, apart from everything else in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is writing here, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he says, um, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about the mindset that was in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God. Now we kind of get confused with this idea he was in the form of God. That doesn't mean he really was God. No, what Paul is saying is he was God. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a thing to be grasped. Meaning he was not so proud or stuck up that he wouldn't condescend or take on humanity. He said, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Meaning, God took on humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, fully God, took on humanity, fully man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. God is going to judge sin. There's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to wipe away your own sin or to earn enough good works to get rid of your sin. So you can't do anything. But the amazing thing is God has done everything for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took on humanity. And now we're going to look at the fact that he is our suffering king. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We're not going to go there, but you know these verses from Christmas time. 
These are the verses that talk about him being wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, right? I think I missed that up there. <laughs> but it's those verses, and it talks about him being a king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, it's pointing to the fact that David will have a son who will be king forever, and that son is Jesus. Luke chapter 1, again, as uh, this account happens with Mary, as Jesus' birth is foretold, we read this in verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We talked about how our sin is rebellion against God. Well, God is sending the once and future king to come and to set up his rule and reign to die for us. He is king, but he also suffers. In John 1, 29, it's talking about him being the lamb of God. John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark 10, 45 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. He was going to pay with his life. Pay with his life. John 10, 15 talks about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he repeats that in John uh, 10, 18. And then in 1 Peter 2, 24. Peter says this. 2, 24. If I can find it here. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, meaning the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And perhaps the greatest passage about Jesus' suffering is Isaiah 53. The suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. That's Jesus. Jesus is king, but yet he suffers on our behalf. He suffers on our behalf. What you deserve, the punishment that you deserve, Jesus Christ took on his shoulders. And this is the heart of the gospel. We talked about it last night. We sang about it in Jesus, thank you, and the power of the cross, and, and Christ alone. The technical term is substitutionary atonement. You guys know what a substitute is, right? In sports, right? You need a sub. Somebody's getting tired. Somebody needs a break. Somebody's not playing that well. You send in a substitute. Somebody to take the place of someone else. Jesus took your place. All of you deserve to be crucified on that cross. And I don't just throw that around flippantly. I mean it. I should have been on there because of my sin. That's what I deserved. But God in his grace, mercy, and love said, no, no, no. I'm going to put my son on that cross. He's going to die. But he's going to be raised again. And he's going to defeat Satan. He's going to defeat sin. He's going to defeat death. And he's going to offer eternal life to anybody who would believe in him. That's an amazing thing. 
He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to. It's an amazing thing, young people, what God has done for us. That Jesus took our place on the cross as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes and he says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Jesus did not know sin. Jesus was without sin. Jesus never did anything wrong in his entire life, but yet God put our sin on him. God put our sin on him, and he willingly took it. And he, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The fact that we could have forgiveness, that we could have a right relationship with God, that we could be saved from our sin. And I love 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. How many of you have ever made the statement, that's not fair? Right? If you have siblings, I guarantee you've said that, right? That's not fair. My four-year-old, Ezra, is already saying that. It's like, ugh. Um, Eden got something the other day, and he's like, that's not fair, even though he already had something, because it wasn't what he wanted. Generally, when we say that, that's not fair, is because we're not getting something that we want, right? When it says here that Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that was not fair. That's probably the only time that you could say that something truly wasn't fair. Jesus suffered for our sins. It's not fair. We don't deserve it. But yet God has done it for us. Jesus has suffered for us. He has died in our place. He took our punishment that we deserve. The amazing thing is is that he's alive. Luke 24 verses 5 through 6 talk about Jesus' resurrection. How he has been raised from the dead. I love the gospel accounts. That's probably one of the hardest parts about the whole quarantine is not being able to celebrate Easter. There's something about uh, Easter morning, even though it's just any other day and you could celebrate Easter in October if you wanted to, uh, but just as the pattern that we have of celebrating the resurrection in the springtime of when they come to the tomb and they say, he's not here. For he's risen. Right? And they're looking and they crouch down and they see that it's empty. And then the women are in the garden. And it's an amazing thing. They look and in John's gospel they say, supposing him to be the gardener. I don't know if you've noticed that. And then the gardener points you back to the Garden of Eden. Right? You see that connection? Where in the Garden of Eden, God says, ah, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And now we see this gardener who actually turns out to be Jesus who has crushed the head of the snake. 
It's an amazing thing. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Romans 8, 33 and 34, talking about the fact that he has raised him from the dead. Nothing can separate us from his love. God's, the Father's love for us through his son, Jesus. It says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has perfectly kept the law. He took our punishment for our sin. Our sin must be judged, and it is judged in Jesus Christ. What an amazing act of grace, of love, and mercy, an act that we do not deserve, 7th and 8th graders. We do not deserve this. But this is the heart of the gospel This is what the gospel is. God created man. God is holy. God is just. Man is accountable to him. Man rebelled against God. Man sinned. Because of sin, he brought death into this world. And because of our sin, we deserve to be judged and go to hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. But God in his grace, love, and mercy sent Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross for our sins and to make a way of forgiveness for us. God, man, Christ. And as we get here then, it's the thing we're going to talk about tomorrow, is response. What are you going to do with this? This isn't just something to put on a cute little picture, to put in a frame that your grandma has up in her house. What are you going to do with this one they call Jesus? What is your response? Do you believe in him? Do you reject him? Because really there's no in-between. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. So as you guys head out, as you split up and have cabin follow-up time, think about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and how he has suffered in your place. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to look and to think about who Jesus Christ is. Lord, we've barely scratched the surface. There is so much, so much depth to the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that he has died in our place. Lord, I pray for these 7th and 8th graders that they would really seek to understand and to realize how blessed uh, they are to receive that grace and mercy and love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those here who may not trust or may not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would realize that he's died for them. And it's only through him as the way, the truth, and the life that we can have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask as we go that you would continue to work in our hearts and lives. We pray in your son's name. Amen.